Hey guys, welcome to Learn Feng Shui, where you'll learn Feng Shui from a classical point of view, taking out the myth and superstition. If you like weekly tips as well as fun folklore tales, you'll enjoy learning Feng Shui with me. Hey guys, today I'm going to talk about Feng Shui in the Southern Hemisphere. So I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole the other day. One of my mentors, Tina Falk, um, feng shui colleague, she actually reached out to me and was like, Hey, have you ever heard of feng shui being different for the Southern hemisphere? And, you know, one of her students was asking her about this, a particular gentleman and, and showed her some stuff about feng shui for the Southern hemisphere. So I've often wondered this, but I've always heard that feng shui energy is universal. And so when I've asked some of my uh, fellow practitioners and um, some people like that, their answer is always that you don't change it because feng shui energy, energy is universal. However, I would like to talk to you today about feng shui for the Southern Hemisphere and a man that actually pioneered this um, way and the style of doing feng shui tailored for those of you in the Southern Hemisphere. So I first want to look at um, the gentleman who actually pioneered and kind of developed this method and applied it to the Southern Hemisphere. His name is Roger Green. Um, I want to kind of talk about his background a little bit because I want to just kind of show the audience a credibility. So he's not just a feng shui person who's just invented a new form of feng shui or anything like that. He's actually studied for over 20 years here and it says he's taught in over 40 countries and 100 cities. In addition to that, he um, is also one of the very first Western teachers to teach classical feng shui in Europe, London, and America. Um, it says here also he was the first to develop a Western Lopan, which is the um, feng shui compass that feng shui practitioners use. And also he was one of the first to hold seminars that taught not only feng shui, but also the um, different, you know, the five arts and Chinese metaphysics. Also, according to his website, it says, I originally came across feng shui when I was living in London 24 years ago. It became part of my study of macrobiotics, traditional Chinese medicine, and shiatsu. Um, which, of course, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that that all encompasses the five arts of Chinese metaphysics. So at this time, there was little written about feng shui, so I began my own research to understand the principles. When I established the Australian School of Macrobiotics in Sydney 16 years ago, they also ran progress programs in natural medicine and oriental philosophy, including astrology and feng shui. He also states that achieving balance with the seasons and incorporating cultural differences was part of that school's curriculum, and it was necessary to successfully apply feng shui principles in Australia. The process of adjusting feng shui for the Southern Hemisphere is something that I have been working on since that time, he says. While Taoist principles remain universal, their application needs to be adjusted to the energetics of the Southern Hemisphere. So this has been one of the biggest things that I've thought when I've posed this question to other feng shui practitioners. And again, I think it's confusing to a lot of people, especially a practitioner that already has like a style that they, that they do. And so it is hard to think of somebody developing a whole system 
and, tr- you know, tracking all these energies, um, which is just astronomical <laughs> um, to, to think about, for, at least for me it is. And so when I've posed this question, I mean, the most obvious thing I know is that the seasons are reversed, you know, when we're celebrating our winter solstice here in the Southern Hemisphere, they're celebrating the um, summer solstice. And so the yin and yang is reversed. And I often wondered, you know, does that really affect it? Is there really something that, you know, is, is, is there some weight to it? And so when I came across this website and it was brought to my attention, I was just kind of fascinated. And I was actually really intrigued because he actually puts classical feng shui, all the formulas, you know, the everything in. So we're going to take a look at what exactly, um, you know, kind of his style is and what is considered when doing this. Cause, um, it's again, like regular feng shui, uh, just a big study. So one of the most basic things that we think about when we're doing feng shui, just some easy concept is we know that we want the sun hitting our home and with feng shui and the Northern hemisphere, we know that this, you know, as we get closer to the South and go towards the equator, it's warmer. And so because of this concept, a lot of times people say that they want those South facing doors. Well, in the Southern Hemisphere, it's a little bit different because that energy, he argues, Roger Green argues, is actually reversed. And so he addresses the fact that um, to them, fire would be in the north because as you get, of course, look north and go towards the equator in their north, um, that would be, you know, looking at the warmer parts of the environment. And so for him, he actually flips around the Bagua and has the energy moving in a different direction according to where they're at geographically. Another key difference is, of course, the Bagua. It only makes sense that if their energy flow is different, then their Bagua and the low shoe would be different. So um, here he explains it like this. I'm just going to read a snippet. He says, the Bagua is an extension of the principles absorbed in nature. So in the Northern Hemisphere, it goes like this. Um, the element of water is generated from the cold north and is associated with the lowest ebb of chi, the winter and the number one. Remember, it can represent a, a thousand things, right? So the element of wood is generated from the rising sun and the springtime in the east and southeast, and it is represented by the numbers three and four. However, since that's that's actually reversed, right? He actually moves that over and he actually puts the Bagua flowing a little bit differently. First of all, it flows in a counterclockwise position and the season of springtime, the element of wood and all that, it actually moves to the northeast and the east. So you see it's um, kind of flipped around a little bit. The energy's changed and moved. And he says to them that represents element of wood because it, it allows in that account for the actual literal flow of chi based on the way they experience it in their environment. So for the Bagua, literally what you're going to think of is that Missy Elliott song that goes, put that thing down, flip it and reverse it and apply it to the Bagua because the whole Bagua is literally just reversed. So all it takes is you thinking about feng shui, (laughs) um, you know, and taking everything, you know, and everything you've learned to classical feng shui and flipping it and making it the total opposite of what you know now. (laughs) Easy, right? 
One thing to know is that he actually tracks this movement as going counterclockwise instead of clockwise. And I mean, this is kind of a funny example, but I always think of that Simpsons episode where um, Bart was trying to find out if the toilet flushed in the opposite direction on the other side of the world. And I think he found out that it did. <laughs> so that's what it makes me think of. So here, of course, our stuff goes clockwise. And in the Southern Hemisphere, it would go counterclockwise. And because of the way this energy moves and the chi flow, um, he just you know, flips the, even the Bagua around where the energy is actually flowing um, counterclockwise or in reverse. But all jokes aside, when you actually look at the patterns of classical feng shui and you're familiar with them, looking at what he applies to the Southern hemisphere is just um, a little bit different. So it's, it's, it makes total sense. I would highly suggest you go read the article, um, all which I linked to below. Um, it's very informative and it's very clear cut. It's just hard to explain on a podcast. So since the spring season for them begins in August, that must mean for them Li Chun or that so the changing of the solar cycle when we get that changing of the animal sign occurs. And so for them, he argues that this occurs during their literal spring equinox and though those animal signs change. So um, with this style, you're actually going to be calculating the animal signs differently according to a different pattern. Um, I would argue to say you could probably read it the same way, but I would just probably take into account the fact that um, if you plot a, a chart using um, an a calculator, an application from Australia, you may get differing ones if you use a different calculator. Now, this isn't anything unusual because there is different schools of thought and feng shui that actually go off different calendar systems. So um, this right here isn't unusual in and of itself. Not only does he take into account, you know, the things I've already talked about, but I mean, he teaches flying stars for the Southern Hemisphere. He actually developed a low pan um, to do, you know, and actually did it himself where he's ch uh, shifted everything around and that is used in the Southern hemisphere. Um, he actually also takes the 64 water, 64 hexagrams, the I Ching and flips those around, um, to account for their chi flow. I just think it's amazing the work that this man has done. And I highly encourage you to go read this article. I really do love the conclusion he puts on here. So he states that no one aspect of feng shui should be seen in isolation. Feng shui can be most effective when several useful diagnostic tools have been acquired and a holistic approach is taken. No one tool is best because they all have their uses in different situations. With adjustments for the Southern Hemisphere, we can effectively capture the cosmic order and bring it into our lives and improve our health and harmony. So I firmly agree with that statement. I really think that when you get into following different feng shui masters, you will find the ones that come from different lineages that are very long, tend to be very rigid in their beliefs and not be open to different styles of feng shui. When in fact, different formulas and different schools and different methods are all very time tested. And that's why they continue to be taught by different feng shui masters. Um, one of the reasons I really love doing this series I'm finishing up called winning with feng shui is because 
I am able to talk to different practitioners and tap into their, even their knowledge. Like these people are amazing and the different styles and things that they bring into their feng shui is just really interesting. And a lot of it just comes from our background, the way we practice and stuff like that. So even though I like to practice classical feng shui and I, you know, talk about taking that superstition out of it. That's just my style of feng shui. You might like a different feng shui practitioner that is able to um, mesh some of those things together or do different, you know, do different uh, things. So that's just the way I, I look at it. And so don't be so quick to think your way is right and another person's is wrong when it works. Today's folktale is being read from Chinese fairy tales and legends and is called The Two Scholars. The peach blossom represents love and peaches mean long life, so the peach tree is a symbol of immortality. Here, two scholars meet two maids, but will it be happy ever after for these couples? Once upon a time, there were two scholars, one named Liu Xian and the other one named Yan Dashu. Both were very young and handsome. One spring day, they went together to the hills of Tianti to gather healing herbs. There they came to a little valley where peach trees blossomed luxuriantly on each side. In the middle of the valley was a cave and two maidens stood there under the blossoming trees. One of them was clad in red garments and the other in green. They were very beautiful beyond all telling and they beckoned to the scholars with their hands. Have you come? They asked, we've been waiting for you over long. Then they went to the cave and served them tea and wine. I've been destined for Lord Liu, said the maiden in red, and my sister is for Lord Yuan. And so they were married. Every day the two scholars gazed at the flowers or they played chess so that they forgot the mundane world completely. They noticed only at times that the peach blossoms on the trees right before the cave opening um, sometimes just blossomed, sometimes they fell from the boughs, and sometimes they unexpectedly felt cold or warm and they had to change their clothing. And so they marveled within themselves, how could this be so? Then one day they were overcome by homesickness, but both the maidens already knew. When our lords have been seized with homesickness, then we may hold them no longer, they said. On the following day, they prepared a farewell banquet and gave them magic wine to take along with them. We will see each other once again. Now go on your way. And the scholars bade them farewell with tears. When they reached home, the gates and doors had long since vanished. The people of the village were all strangers to them and crowded around and asked them who they might be. We are Lu Xian and Yuan Da Shu. Only a few days ago, we went to the hills to pick herbs. With that, the servant hastened up, looked at them and said, at last, Lucian, with great joy, you've returned. Yes, you really are my master. And since you went away, we have had no news of any kind regarding you. Some 70 years or more have passed. Thereupon, the servant drew a scholar to come greet them. So he took them through the high gateways, ornament with bosses and a ring in the lion's mouth, as was custom in the dwellings of those of high estate. 
when he entered the hall an old woman with white hair bent and leaning on a cane came forward and said who is this the scholar replied our master has returned once again turning to lou he added here is our mistress she is nearly a hundred years old but she is in good health tears of joy and sadness filled the lady's face and she replied since you went away among the immortals i had thought we would never see each other in this lifetime what a great fortune that you have returned at all and before she was done talking to him the whole family men and women came streaming up and welcomed him in a great throng outside the hall she pointed out this is so-and-so so-and-so and made introductions so if you haven't got what's going on by now, this is his family that he disappeared from 70 years prior. It says here that at that time, the scholar disappeared. There had only been a tiny boy in his home, but a few years old. And now he was an old man of 80. He had served in the empire in a high office and had retired to enjoy his old age in the ancestral gardens. There were three grandchildren, all celebrated ministers. And there were more than 10 great-grandchildren of five who had already passed examinations for the doctorate. There were some 20 great-grandchildren of whom the oldest had just returned after passing an induction exam for the magistry with honor. And the little ones who were carrying their parents' arms were too many to be counted. Those grandchildren who were away busy with their duties all asked for leave and returned home when they heard that their ancestor had returned. And their granddaughters who married into their families also came. This filled Lou with joy. The family had prepared a giant banquet for him with all his descendants, their wives and husbands, and they all sat about him in a circle. And his wife was a white-haired, wrinkled old woman who sat in the midst at the upper end. The scholar himself still looked like a youth of about 20 years old. And all the young people in the circle looked and laughed at this. And the scholar said, I have means of driving away old age. And he drew out his magic wine and gave some to his wife who took a drink. After she had taken about three glasses of it, her white hair gradually began to turn black again and her wrinkles disappeared. She sat beside her husband, a handsome young woman. And his son and the older grandchildren came up and all asked for a drink with a wine. And whoever drank from them, only so much as a drop, turned from old age back to youth. The tale spread quickly and came up to the emperor's ears. And the emperor wanted to call on Liu for his court, but he declined with many thanks. Nonetheless, he sent the emperor some of his magic wine as a gift. And this pleased the emperor greatly. And he gave Liu a tablet of honor inscribed the common house of five generations. Besides this, he sent him three signs written in his own imperial brush signifying joy and longevity. As to the other of the two scholars, Yuan Shu, he was not so fortunate. When he came home, he found his wife and child had long since died, and his grandchildren and great-grandchildren were mostly useless people. So he did not remain long, but he returned to the hills and let yet Lia Xun remained for some years with his family and then took his wife back with him to the hills and was seen no more. So I have a couple of different thoughts in this story. My first one is my correlation to fae and fairy folklore that we hear across different cultures and how if you eat the food or you drink the drink, then you will remain in that, that, um, 
that space or that dimension. And when you finally do return, you'll feel like only a few days or a few weeks has passed. But in fact, it's been a few years. Um, my other thought is like, did he seriously just go picking herbs one day and just ditch his wife and shack up with a woman in a cave and like marry her and left his family at home? And then he returned home. Like he just thought it was going to be okay. Like my husband wouldn't make it through the front gate of that town did that um but my third thought also is like what was, what was this magic drink because i'm just saying i drink um peach wine and uh so if you know peaches symbolize that immortality and that'll make me immortal i mean i'll just continue to do that um but all jokes aside um that peach that peach blossom um is supposed to represent not just mortality but also um like romance so i kind of wonder if that symbol of the peach blossom also is you know kind of connected to that story so for November and December, I'm only going to have three episodes um, out because I'm taking the last week of November off and the last week of December off. So I'll be putting those episodes out. Um, but the third week of the month, I'm going to be featuring audio that I've taken from my different interviews, which is just going to be a good 10, 15 minute snippet of audio where we kind of branch out on a different subject. I did it um, last month with Jillian Rothschild Scholar and her geopathic stress. And this month I'm featuring Linda Elson and our conversation that we had about different feng shui energies and like mapping those energies and what happens when you activate the wrong energy. So if you've ever been interested in that or like want to hear kind of like some of the, the things that don't necessarily work out, um, correctly or sometimes when you don't know how to activate feng shui what can happen <laughs> join us for that conversation because it's really interesting we'll also talk about some things that we do to kind of negate that energy if that should happen so anyway join us next week for that and for those of you that celebrate thanksgiving have a great holiday To support the podcast, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your family and friends who you think may be interested, especially if you found this content useful. To learn more about feng shui and Chinese metaphysics, follow the link to the website below.